Thank you, Bethany, our great Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And we're going to talk about the Savior today in a message I've entitled, The Savior is Alive. Acts chapter 2 in your Bibles, Acts chapter 2. We're looking at verses 22 through 32 this morning and tying it back to what we read in our scripture reading in Psalm 16. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 32. If you were able last weekend to watch the Kentucky Derby, or maybe you caught some of the highlights, you would have witnessed an unbelievable race, an unbelievable comeback, and really an incredible upset as well, as Rich Strike charges through traffic to just barely pull off one of the greatest upsets in racing history. If you saw the highlight, he was fourth from last as they rounded the last corner. Field of 20 horses, fourth from last as they round that last bend, and that's when everything changed. And he makes this incredible charge, weaving through traffic, and passes the two front runners at the last moment. Just incredible. The turning point in that race was late, right? Yet in every sporting event, there's always a turning point. Sometimes it comes early in the game. Sometimes it comes later on. You know, that's true in movie scripts as well. There's always a turning point. There's that place where the plot is building, then all of a sudden something happens and it turns. And I dare say it's true in our own lives as well. There's a turning point, isn't there? Something where things maybe are going one direction and then something happens and, and we get redirected another way. Well, in the early part of the book of Acts, we see that for the apostles. We see that turning point in their lives. When Jesus died, they were scared. They were confused fishermen and tradesmen who, who didn't initially, they didn't understand the death of Jesus and what it meant and what it was about and how they were supposed to respond to it. But then everything changed for them. And I think the turning point for them was twofold. One, it was the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. When the Holy Spirit came, everything changed for them. It was also, secondly, this, and these two worked together, but it was also the reality of the resurrection for them. The fact, the undeniable fact that Jesus was alive, and they were willing to then give their lives for that. You don't give your life if you don't know for sure something is true. But from that point on, when they, the Holy Spirit came and they realized that the, the reacts, resurrection was real, things changed for them. them. It was, in essence, the thing that they initially doubted became then the thing that changed their lives, the resurrection. And it becomes a focal point of their message. Let me take, take you through the early parts of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, they choose Matthias <clears throat> to replace Judas. For this reason, that he would be with them a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Acts 3, verse 15, Peter is there at the temple and he preaches that Jesus has resurrected, that he is alive. Acts 4, verse 10, Peter is preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the Sanhedrin. Acts chapter 5, verse 30, Peter preaches the resurrection of Christ while he is on trial for preaching. Acts 7, verse 36, Stephen says that as he's being stoned, he looks up into heaven and he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What is he saying? He's saying Jesus is alive. He's not in the grave. I see him in glory. 
Acts 8, Philip preaches Christ to the Ethiopian eunuch, no doubt including the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then it says that he baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch. And what is baptism? But an illustration of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that has made a difference in our lives. This morning, the focus is on another one of these places where the resurrection is highlighted in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 32. Now, to get us to kind of where we are in the story, I want to just briefly recap what's happened in chapter 2. In verses 1 to 4, we see that the Holy Spirit comes and fills the disciples, which fulfilled the promise of Jesus to them in Acts 1 and then earlier in John that he says, when I go, the helper will come. The comforter will come. He will guide you into all truth. He will convict you of sin. He will be there for you, and not only there, but he will be in you. And so that happens in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And then verses 4 through 13, by the power of the Holy Spirit within the disciples, they are able to speak in their own language, yet everyone else that's gathered in Jerusalem that day who knows a different language is able to understand what they are saying in their language. It's a miracle. God confirming in the disciples this new message and that these, these are the ones now they are going to take the gospel into the world. That's verses 4 through 13. And then in verse 14, Peter begins his message. It says, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, raises his voice and says to them. Peter, the, the scared kind of backwards fisherman at first, now preaches boldly before them. He starts out his message in verses 14 through verse 21 by saying that what you have seen happen here with the the miracle of these tongues, of these languages, what you've seen happen is part of the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel said would happen. And he quotes there in verses 17 through 21 what the prophet Joel has said, probably a partial fulfillment of what then will also be fully fulfilled in the last days. And then in Acts 2.22, Peter really masterfully defends and and he proves the resurrection of Jesus Christ by going back and quoting what David has said in Psalm 16. And that's where we pick it up. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. We're going to read down through verse 32. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence." Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, 
And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Now in verse 22, Peter says some really harsh things, some direct things. He says to his audience, which is a Jewish audience gathered from many places across the world, he says, you killed Jesus. Do you see that in verse 22? You have killed Jesus. But the fact that you killed Jesus was actually accomplishing the purpose and the plan of God in that God wanted him to die for the sake of the sins of the world. And here we have, we have, we have both ends of the spectrum here. This is the incredible sovereignty and, and providence of God. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago as well, that, that God wins even when it looks like defeat. And that he works in our lives to do his will in us even when we don't even realize he's at work. He's working to accomplish in us what he wants to do. And then in verse 24, in verse 24, Peter turns his attention and his audience's attention, really, to the resurrection of Jesus and how it proves that Jesus is the Messiah. Look at verse 24. He says, whom God, talking about Jesus, whom God raised up. God is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And then he says, having loosed the pains of death. The pains of death were removed from Christ. In essence, death could not hold on to him. The grave had no power over him. You remember Jesus, when he had power over the grave, and he spoke into that grave, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And at that very moment, the grave, the tomb, could not hold on to Lazarus. It had no power over Lazarus. Death had no power over Lazarus, because the king of the universe had spoken. And in the same way here, he says, the, the pains of death have been loosed. The grave can't hold on to him. Jesus comes forth out of the grave, and death and the tomb were powerless to hold on to him. And then he says this, which I think is an incredible phrase. Last part of verse 24, he says, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Don't miss that. It was not possible that Jesus would be held by the grave. It was not possible for death to hold on to Jesus. It was not possible for Jesus to remain in the grave. It was not possible for his body to be found in the grave after the third day. In essence, what he's saying is the resurrection of Jesus had to happen. It was impossible for it not to happen. There was no chance that the resurrection of Jesus Christ would not happen. He says it was impossible that he would be held by the grave. Which begs us a question. Why? Why was it not possible for Jesus to remain in the grave? And Peter says, verse 25, he says, for David says concerning him. 
The reason it wasn't possible, Peter says he goes to David's words of scripture for the reason. I don't miss this. When he says, David says, in essence, he's saying scripture says. So David says equals scripture says, because David has written inspired scripture that they have in this Jewish audience that, that Peter is speaking to. They know this. They know what he's, what he's going to quote here. They know it's from David. And so when he says it's not possible for Jesus to remain in the grave, why is it not possible? Because scripture has said. And there is a huge doctrinal point for us right there. Something that is foundational for all of our lives. Jesus had to rise from the dead because of the authority of scripture. He had to come out of the grave because Scripture says he would. And here is the profound doctrinal truth for us, for our lives as believers, that Scripture is authoritative because it is God's Word. We live in a world that wants to cut that apart, even Christians, and even churches, that will undermine and try to cave in the authority of Scripture. And when that happens, whose authority rises? The speakers, the persons, our world's authority rises. The authority of Scripture is what becomes the foundation for our lives. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's how we know it's God's words. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. 2 Peter 1.21, it says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Scripture is the authoritative word of God, and therefore it is the basis for our life, for our faith, for our practice, for all that we do. You see, we don't, we don't base our lives like the, the world does, where what I'm going to do is because, well, I think this, or I think that. No, that's not the basis for our lives. The basis for our lives is this, it is written, thus says the Lord. That's the basis for our lives. And when that crumbles, guess what else crumbles? Your faith crumbles. When your adherence to the word of God and the authority of it, when that crumbles, your faith crumbles as well. Earlier, when we, we welcomed Becky into membership, we talked about the importance of having an eagerness for the word of God. When that goes, the church goes. When there's not a desire for the word of God, the church will go as well. The authority of scripture in our lives, Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The word of the Lord will stand, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that. The message of Scripture is true, and the power of Scripture is infinite. It's as alive today as it ever has been. What the Word says will happen, will happen. What the Word says about us is true. What the Word says about our world is true. What it says about eternity is true. And what it says about Jesus Christ is true as well. 
And that's why it was not possible for Jesus to remain in the grave because scripture had already spoken through David in Psalm 16, a thousand years previously, scripture had already spoken and said that he won't stay in the grave. And when scripture speaks, God speaks. Don't separate the two. When scripture speaks, God speaks and God cannot lie. It cannot be undone. So when scripture says that Christ will rise from the dead, guess what? He will. It's impossible for him not to. Christ had to rise from the dead. I want to show you three reasons here that we see in Acts 2 and then in what David says in Psalm. Christ had to rise from the dead, number one, because of David's prophecy in Psalm 16. Christ had to rise from the dead first because of David's prophecy in Psalm 16. Now, in verses 25 through 28 here in Acts 2, Peter quotes what David wrote in Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Look at verse 25. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. So Peter says David wrote this, and this proves the resurrection. Now, when David wrote Psalm 16, he's writing from the perspective of his own surroundings, his own situations. Yet Peter tells us that there's someone else in mind here. In essence, there's another speaker. When it says I or to me in those verses, he's saying it's, it's David wrote that, but it's actually someone else that is speaking that. So David's words in Psalm 16, 8 through 11 are actually the words of someone other than David. Acts 2.30, Peter says, therefore being a prophet, he, Peter tells us that David is speaking as a prophet. And that would be important, because remember, who is Peter talking to? A Jewish audience. And so when Peter says, David said, everybody's ears kind of go, oh, David said this. Because who's David in Israel, his, Israel's history? Well, he's a hero. He, he, he's, he's the venerated hero, the king, King David. And so when Peter quotes him, he says, hey, David, David said this. Psalm 16.10, which is quoted in Acts 2.27, is really the key verse here. If you would look at that for a second. Psalm 16.10, which he quotes in Acts 2.27, is the key verse for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. How do we know that David is not speaking about himself here? How do we know that he is not speaking about himself? Well, the first reason is in Acts 2.29, Peter tells us he's not. Peter says in verse 29, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. So Peter's saying, hey, David's dead. He's buried and his tomb's right over there somewhere, right? And 1 Kings 2.10 tells us that when David died, he was buried in Jerusalem. Peter here on the day of Pentecost is in Jerusalem preaching. 
And so he's saying David died, he's buried, and his tomb is right over there. Now you can go, if you put that picture up on the screen, you can go to Israel and you can see the tomb of David or what they call the tomb of David there. People debate whether or not David's body is actually in there. For the sake of argument, let's say it is. So what Peter is saying is, hey, right over there, maybe, you know, just down over the hill there is David's body. David's bones are in there. His body is dead. It has decayed beyond the point of recognition. And even while Peter was speaking and while we are speaking now, he's still decaying. So when David in Psalm 16 says, you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption, he can't be talking about himself. Why? Because his body is currently seeing corruption, currently experiencing corruption. Now, don't let these terms throw you in verse 27 and then in Psalm 16:10 as well. We have that word Hades. If you have a King James, it might be translated hell. And oftentimes the King James does translate those words always as hell. There's actually a little bit of a difference here. Hades is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Sheol, if you remember that when we read it in Psalm 16.10. And we find, those, we find it there and we find it here, find it in several other places as well. And in English, Hades and Sheol are not translations but transliterations. And what they mean, both of these words, Sheol in the Hebrew, Hades in the Greek, what it simply means is the realm or the place of the dead, the grave. All right? So he says, you will not leave my soul in Hades or the grave, the place of the dead. Well, where's David's body right now? In the place of the dead. It's in the grave. So when Psalm 16.10 says, you will not leave my soul in Sheol, you won't allow your Holy One to experience corruption, David had to have been writing about someone besides himself. And that's where we see it. Who then is your holy one? Who in Psalm 1610, when David says, you will not allow your holy one to experience corruption, who is he talking about? He has to be talking about the only holy one, Christ. And so here we see this prophecy of the resurrection of Christ, that he won't be left in the grave. It's impossible for him to be left in the grave because scripture has said he will rise. He will not be left there. So the first reason Christ had to rise from the dead is because of David's prophecy in Psalm 16. But I want to take you back even further than that. The second reason is because of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. The second reason Christ had to rise from the dead is because of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. Now, Peter tells us this in Acts 2, verse 30 and 31. Look at these verses. He says, Therefore, being a prophet, talking about David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, he being David, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So Peter says that in Acts 2, 30 and 31, that David spoke the prophecy in Psalm 16 because God had given David a promise of someone who would sit on his throne forever. Where do we see that? 2 Samuel 7, 16. We call it the Davidic covenant. 
where God said to David, your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And God enters this covenant with David. It's reiterated for us a few other places. 1 Kings 9, Psalm 132.11 states it. But then in Jeremiah 33.17, it puts it in these words. Jeremiah 33.17 says, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. So David knows God has given me this promise about someone that will sit on my throne forever. Now, when David prophesies in Psalm 16, did he know and understand that exactly 1,000 years later, a man named Jesus Christ would rise and be the one specifically to fulfill this? Probably not. He probably didn't know those specifics. But you know what David did know? He knew that God would keep his promises. He knew that God would keep his promise. And in order for someone from his line to rule forever, in some way, their body could not experience corruption. And in some way, they had to defy death in order for them to rule forever on his throne. So here it's impossible again for Christ not to rise from the dead because God had told David that there would always be a man to sit on David's throne. And David then in Psalm 16 revealed scripture, prophesies that God's holy one would not see corruption. Then comes along Peter and he says, hey, guess what? Guess who's the holy one? It's Christ. And Peter draws all this together and he said, the one you crucified, the one who rose from the dead, that's the one. He's the one we're talking about here. He rises from the dead and he's therefore the Messiah. Christ coming along and fulfilling all the prophecies about Messiah that we see in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord will stand forever. The word of the Lord will stand. It will not be undone. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Now, Peter's not the only one to say this. Jump ahead in your Bibles just a little bit, Acts chapter 13. And I'll show you the other place that Psalm 16 is quoted in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in Acts 13, 26 to 39 is kind of the context where he's preaching again in Antioch, Pisidia. And Paul here upholds what Peter has said about David's prophecy. He corroborates it for us. Acts 13.35, if you look at that verse, Paul quotes, he says, Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. So Paul quoting Psalm 16.10 again to confirm the resurrection. And then he summarizes in verses 36 and 37 what Peter had said about David being dead, and so the reference having to be about someone else. Look at what he says in verse 36, Acts 13. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, meaning died, was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. So Paul here basically saying the same thing that Peter says. When David speaks in Psalm 16, he's not talking about David. He's talking about someone that will not see corruption. And Paul then also draws the connection to Christ the one whom God raised up, the one who did not experience corruption. But Paul takes us a helpful step forward. I want you to miss this. Acts 13, verse 38. 
Paul takes us a step forward. One other reason why Christ had to rise from the grave. Verse 38, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Paul says it's true that Christ is the Messiah. He is the one. And here's what he came to do. Through Christ is preached the forgiveness of sins. Through him, through Christ, everyone who believes is justified, made righteous by God. And here we see a summary of the gospel. That here comes Jesus, who dies to pay the penalty for our sins. Through him is forgiveness of sins. It's a penalty that we could not pay. There was no amount of our good works that would be able to be good enough for it. No righteousness of our own would be strong enough for it. But the gospel doesn't stop there. It's not just the penalty or payment for our sins. He says also, the rest of the gospel is important. See, Jesus did not just die, but he also rose from the dead. And he rose from the dead to confirm and to guarantee life for all those who call on him. All those who believe in Jesus Christ. And here we see another reason why Christ had to rise from the dead. Because his resurrection secures our resurrection. Christ had to rise from the dead because without the resurrection of Christ, all the promises of life, all the promises of salvation, all the promises of eternity given to those who believe in him, without Christ rising from the dead, they would all be null and void. They would all be worthless. Without the resurrection of Christ, King David stays in the grave forever. He never rises if Christ doesn't rise. And I think there's a sense when, Paul, when David writes Psalm 16, yes, he's writing about someone else, but yet there's also that personal sense of, though writing about this person, there's hope for me as well, that he will not leave my soul in Hades, that he will not allow his Holy One to see corruption. There's that eschatological look towards the future where he says, I also will rise. And so the resurrection of Christ secures our resurrection because without it, we are dead and we are miserable in our sins. Jesus had to rise from the dead to fulfill and to, and to actuate all the promises of God for salvation that he's given to us. Go in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Looking at verse number 20. Christ had to rise because his resurrection secures our resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, it says this, but now Christ is risen from the dead. Any arguments? No. He is risen from the dead. It is an undeniable fact of history that Jesus' body is not in the tomb anymore. He is risen from the dead. And that's the one thing, one of the things that separates him from every other savior or every other founder of a religion. Muhammad came along as some great man. He died 
And you know what you can do today? You can go and see where he's buried. He, it's in Medina, Saudi Arabia. He's buried actually where he died, in, the wife, in his wife's home, Aisha, one of his wives. He died there, and he's buried there. It's called the Green Dome. You can go visit it today. Guess where he is? In there. Buddha died. They said he actually was cremated, and they divided his body into eight portions and gave it to his followers. Now, it's probably a little harder to track that down these days, but guess what? His remains exist somewhere. But Christ is risen from the dead. And someone who is alive doesn't have remains, do they? He's not in the grave. He's as alive today as he's ever been. That's what separates him. We serve a living Savior. He's in the world today. Now, that's not it. Look at verse 20, the second part. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Great, Christ rose. What does it mean for me? Watch this. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. What are the first fruits? It's the first things picked in the harvest. And so Jesus, it says here, is the first one resurrected. The first one, he's not experiencing corruption, but he's certainly not the last. Because you know what our future hope is? That on the day of Christ's return, there will be a vast harvest of resurrected, glorified bodies that will meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Philippians 3 taught us this. Verse 20 and 21, it says, For our citizenship is not in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Our resurrection is only possible because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he lives, we will live. Now don't miss the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 here, verses 21 and 22. For since by man came death. Look at verse 22. For as in Adam all die. Why do we die? Why do we experience corruption now? Because of sin. Because we are descendants of Adam, and by Adam came death because of sin. Romans 5, 12. Wherefore, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. But look at the last part of these verses. Verse 21, for since by man came death, by man, capital M, Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So by Adam comes death because of sin, but by Christ comes life and the resurrection from the dead for all those who believe. The resurrection had to happen or else the promises of God for us in salvation would not be true. We would be dead in our sins and we would be of all people most miserable. Christ's resurrection secures our resurrection. There's a song that's been written recently, and it says this, Come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance. 
how unwavering our hope, Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. It is the power of Christ's resurrection that guarantees our resurrection. And so the resurrection of Christ, we see this by, by, prophesied by David thousand years before Christ comes. It ultimately looks forward to our resurrection from the dead to live with Christ forever. If you notice the, our song of the month this month, the, the last verse of it, it says this. It's the song, The Lord is My Salvation. On that last verse that we sing, it says this. And when I reach my final day, he will not leave me in the grave, but I will rise. He will call me home. The Lord is my salvation. In David, we see a foretaste of hope through Christ, the, the one who would come, and all of God's promises would be fulfilled through him. Today, we also look to Christ, our hope, the one in whom all the promises of God are fulfilled, in the one in whom we have salvation and life eternal through Christ in us. Let's pray.